Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study as we begin to explore the Gospel of Luke, something a bit different. And as always, we'll have a look at the text and then we'll dive into it and see if we can work out what it's saying on the literal level. I'd also encourage you to listen to the bonus episode that was released yesterday that gives you a bit more information about the background of Luke. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as he usually did. He stood up to read, and they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, and to blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the assistant, and sat down. And all eyes were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to speak to them. This text is being fulfilled today even as you listen. And he won the approval of all, and they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, surely. But he replied, No doubt you will quote me the saying, Physician, heal yourself. And tell me, We have heard all that happened in Capernaum. Do the same here in your own countryside. And he went on, I tell you solemnly, No prophet is ever accepted in his own country. There were many widows in Israel, I can assure you, in Elijah's day, when heaven remained shut for three years and six months, and a great famine raged throughout the land. But Elijah was not sent to any one of these. He was sent to a widow at Zarephath, a Sidonian town. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of these was cured, except the Syrian Naaman. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They sprang to their feet and hustled him out of the town, and they took him up to the brow of the hill their town was built on, intending to throw him down the cliff. But he slipped through the crowd and walked away. So what's the context here? Jesus has just been tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he's now come to Galilee to begin his ministry. Now, it's not clear whether... The text we see today happened straight away. It would seem that it probably didn't. It seems that Jesus had been in Capernaum for quite a bit in between the desert and this particular scene. But Luke has placed this particular scene in Nazareth right at the start of his narration of Jesus' life because of its symbolic importance, because of the words he says here. It sort of sets the scene. In fact, it deliberately sets the scene for everything else Jesus is going to do in his ministry. So Luke puts it at the start, even though there's probably some events later in the Gospel of Luke which do come before this. So we're starting at verse 16 today. It says, He came to Nazareth, or Nazareth, it says in our text, which is Nazareth. So he's doing a preaching tour of Galilee, and he comes to his hometown. Nazareth is a town of around 300 people in this time period. So everyone would know everyone else. Everyone would know who Jesus was. He'd only moved away pretty recently, actually, and so for most of his life he'd been in Nazareth, and since the last time he was in Nazareth, he has developed quite a following. So they're probably quite interested in what Jesus has to say on this particular day. He goes into the synagogue, 
Now, we've found the synagogue at Nazareth, or it seems like the one that he would have preached at. It's quite small, and you can actually go and visit this synagogue today, the synagogue that Jesus preached in. This would be the synagogue where Jesus had learned scriptures as a boy, and now he's about to teach scriptures to his own town. How interesting is that? And he goes there on the Sabbath day. So that will be the day when everyone in the town was required to come for worship. Sometimes they would have a local leader preach, but if there was a traveling preacher, they would preach instead, which is what happens here. He stands up to read the scroll, and that's the proper posture for reading from the scriptures. And they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, it's not clear whether this is the scheduled reading for the day. It appears they did have sort of um, a yearly liturgy where they would read certain texts on each date, and it appears that this is the chosen text for the day. Or it's possible that Jesus deliberately picked out this text from amongst others. As far as we know, these scrolls, the Old Testament scrolls, were kept in special jars, and they're only in a synagogue in each town. It's not like we have today where you can have lots of copies of the scripture in your own house. In that day, the pretty much the only place in town that would have copies of the scripture was the synagogue. So you would literally have to go there to learn the scriptures. You couldn't teach yourself. So Jesus gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he finds the place where it is written. Again, is he deliberately finding this place or is it the scheduled reading for the day? It's not entirely clear. And he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And there's also a part here from Isaiah chapter 58 as well. And it looks like Jesus combines them together deliberately because they have common themes. So this is what he reads out. The spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a lot we could say about this text. Each of those lines in there from Isaiah 61 could be unpacked. By the time of Jesus, this text had become associated with the Messiah, and particularly because the word Messiah just means anointed one, and this text actually mentions anointing. It says, the Lord has anointed me. So the Jews in Jesus' time had come to recognize that this does seem to be about the Messiah. In the time of Jesus, it was believed that the Messiah would come and do all the things that are listed here in Isaiah 61 as part of the year of the Lord's favor. And there's a whole complex theology in the Old Testament about the year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor. And in particular, it involved buying back or rather getting back land that used to belong to you. So all debts were canceled, all property ownership was canceled. There were some interesting things that happened every 50 years in a Jubilee year. And because this text mentions the year of the Lord's favor and the Jubilee as well, the people in Jesus' time had come to believe that the Messiah, as a result of this passage, would be a kinsman redeemer who would redeem the enslaved people and then usher in a Jubilee age of liberty. So they saw all of that as contained in here. Now, of course, they thought of the Messiah when the Messiah was going to redeem the people. They thought about it more in terms of military terms, as in the Messiah is going to come and overthrow the Romans and bring them physical, political freedom. That was the kind of freedom from enslavement they envisioned. However, there were some more mystical Jews who um, perceived something a bit deeper in this text. And in particular, the Essenes at Qumran, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, had some interesting interpretations of this text. They looked at this text in Isaiah 61 
and they thought about the Jubilee year and they realized that the kind of redemption or kinsman redeeming which is involved here probably involves redemption from sin, not political redemption. In fact, the Essenes of Qumran went even further. They said that uh, this Messiah would be a priest king like Melchizedek. And we know from later in the New Testament that that is actually confirmed. So the Essenes were much closer to the right interpretation of this text than most of the Jews in Jesus' time were. There's a fascinating book, if you're interested in this, about all the things the Dead Sea Scrolls said about the Messiah and how the vast majority of them were fulfilled by Jesus. So you can read this book. It's called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's written by a Catholic scholar, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls by John Bergsma. So I'd recommend looking at that if you're interested in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essenes because they're quite a fascinating group. Now, all the things Jesus lists in this passage here from Isaiah 61 we probably just glance or gloss over it because we're so familiar with it. But all the things that are mentioned there are things that he is going to do in the Gospel of Luke. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim liberty to captives, give the blind new sight. All those things will be things that he does. Notice the emphasis in this text on bringing good news to the poor, which is actually one of Luke's main things that he emphasizes. And this text, uh, well, Jesus deliberately chooses this text from Isaiah to highlight From Jesus' perspective, the gospel is open to everyone. In fact, he's going to explicitly say that in the second half of this paragraph. So by Jesus quoting this passage from Isaiah 61, and then he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, basically he's making it his mission statement. He's saying, this is what I have come to do. I'm the Messiah. Usually when Jesus announces he's the Messiah, he does it in a subtle way where it's like everyone knows what he means but he doesn't come right out and say it. And there's some reasons for that. This is one of those places. He subtly says, I'm the Messiah and the time of Jubilee has arrived. Verse 20, he then sits down and that's the position of teaching in that culture. And all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. So everyone in Nazareth is waiting to hear his sermon. Verse 21, he began to say to them, And the text here kind of indicates that we have an abbreviated version of his sermon. We don't get to hear Jesus' entire sermon. I wish we did, but we don't. All we get to hear him say here is this. This text is being fulfilled today, even as you listen. That's the abbreviated version we get of Jesus' sermon. So Jesus claims to be the Messiah here. Notice he says, even as you listen. So Jesus is doing these things at this very moment. Particularly, he's bringing good news to the poor. And you could also say... He's bringing sight to the blind by him even being there and talking to them. Verse 22. He won the approval of all, and they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. So initially, the response of the crowd is very positive. They're amazed and they're astonished by him, and they have his approval. But very quickly, that turns around. It seems that it's within a couple of minutes or perhaps a couple of hours. Things turn around pretty quickly. And this is what they say. They said, this is Joseph's son, surely. So the people of Nazareth, who are a very tight-knit community, they know that Jesus is Joseph's son. That's what they know him as. They've seen him grow up and be a carpenter, and they find it hard to believe that he's now a preacher anointed by God. That just doesn't make sense to them, because there's such a radical division in their mind between common working man and religious teacher. 
And they think surely he can't be a teacher, certainly not the Messiah who's going to inaugurate Israel's national liberation. Mark's version of this story, Mark chapter 6, unpacks the crowd's response a bit more and their incredulity here. So Mark's version gives us more information about the crowd, but Luke's version here gives us the most information about what Jesus says on this occasion. Verse 23, he replied, No doubt you will quote me the saying, Physician, heal yourself. So apparently this was a common proverb at the time, physician, heal yourself, which basically means something like this. If you are so good, prove it to us. That's what the phrase meant at that time. And Jesus here predicts that they're going to quote him that saying. Um, Now, interestingly, only Luke, the physician, quotes this proverb. None of the other gospel authors include Jesus saying this, probably because Luke himself is a physician. So he thinks it's worthwhile, including this saying Jesus has about physicians. What does Jesus mean here when he predicts that they're going to say, physician, heal yourself? He's predicting that that's the attitude the people of Nazareth will have. He thinks they're going to have an attitude of, we demand proof, and he turns out to be spot on. He goes on, you will tell me, we have heard all that happened in Capernaum, do the same here in your own countryside. So by now, Jesus had moved to Capernaum, and he'd done lots of miracles there as part of his ministry. Now, Luke hasn't told us any of those by this point, but he will later in his gospel. Now Jesus is here in Nazareth, which is about a day's journey away, and they want to see similar miracles. Basically, they want proof in order to believe this carpenter's son, which they know so well. Verse 24, they're still in the synagogue. Jesus says, I tell you solemnly. Now, when Jesus says that, different translations have it as amen, amen, or verily, verily. So that means Jesus is about to say something significant, and often it's a some sort of universal theological statement that applies to all times. No prophet is ever accepted in his own country. So Jesus here is telling us a general pattern, and he's talking particularly about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets were often rejected by the people of the town that they grew up in, so they have to go and minister somewhere else. And the reason they're often rejected is because everyone knows who they are, and the town doesn't believe that this person is capable of being God's messenger. Not that they don't believe in God, but that they just don't think that this person that they they know so well from their town could be a messenger. So notice by Jesus saying this, he's basically claiming to be a prophet. He's implying that he's a prophet and that he's being rejected by his own hometown, which is true. So Jesus now goes on to give two examples from Old Testament history. And this has been explained you know, what's Jesus' reason for doing this? It's explained different ways by different scholars. Some people have said that he's uh, giving discussion about the Jubilee year because he just quoted from Isaiah and it mentions Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favour, and he's about to explain how it's being extended to Gentiles. That's one option. I think it's more likely that he's continuing what he just said, which is no prophet is ever accepted in his own country. He's now going to give two examples where the prophet wasn't accepted in their own country. So there's, he's going to talk about two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, which were Jewish prophets, but they had to work in Gentile areas because basically they were rejected by the Jews in their own area. So Jesus, by citing two examples here, he's calling on two witnesses to support the point he's making. And if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that the expectation was if you want to make a point, You've got to have two witnesses to back you up. 
Um, and that's listed in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. So that's what Jesus is doing. His two witnesses are going to be Elijah and Elisha. Verse 25, Jesus says, There were many widows in Israel, I can assure you, in Elijah's day. So notice that there were many widows in Israel in, El- in Elijah's day. But the key thing Jesus is about to say is that Elijah didn't go to any of the Israelite widows because they wouldn't have accepted him. When heaven remained shut up for three years and six months and a great famine raged throughout the land. So Jesus here is setting the context of the Elijah story. And this is in 1 Kings 17 verse 8 to 16. Now, interestingly, when Jesus says here, he's talking about the time of Elijah, when heaven remained shut up for three years and six months. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings, we don't actually learn that it's three years and six months. We don't get the time period. But Jesus knows what the time period is. So this provides strong evidence that the Jews did place a lot of weight on traditions outside of Scripture. And Jesus believed that as well. So often you might hear some Christians say that Jews would have only believed the things that were clearly in the Old Testament, but this isn't. The time period of Elijah's drought is not in the Old Testament, but apparently all the Jews knew what it was, so they must have believed in unwritten traditions. Now, why does Jesus here feel the need to set this context of Elijah's story, of talking about three years and six months? Many scholars would say it's significant for the Jews because it's half of seven years, so it's like half of completion, because for the Jews, seven means completion. And it appears, if we add up the dates, that Jesus' own ministry was three years and six months long, which is interesting, the same length as Elijah's ministry, in a sense, anyway, in, in Elijah's part, this part of Elijah's ministry. So maybe by Jesus bringing up the time length of this part of Elijah's ministry, he's foreshadowing his own ministry. That's a possibility. Verse 26, Elijah was not sent to any of these, he was sent to a widow at Zarephath, a Sidonian town. So Elijah went to a Gentile town, you can read this in 1 Kings 17, where he was accepted by the Gentiles. And in this case, God allowed the Gentile woman to survive the famine through the work of the Jewish prophet Elijah. Verse 27, he gives a second example. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel. Some people pronounce this Elisha, just to make it a little bit clearer to compare it to Elijah. But I'm just going to call it Elisha, just for argument's sake. So, once again, with Elijah, God's prophet is rejected by the Israelites, and Elisha goes to the Gentiles instead. Jesus says none of these were cured except the Syrian, Naaman. And this is referred to in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. You might remember the story of Naaman the Syrian where he's told to bathe seven times and then he's cured of leprosy. So in both examples here, the Israelites were experiencing a drought, but God didn't help them. He healed Gentiles instead. The Jewish prophets healed Gentiles. So here Luke is highlighting this story because, and as he often does in Luke's gospel, He wants his readers to know that the kingdom is open to Gentiles, not just to Jews. So these prophets, Elijah and Elisha, were not accepted in their hometown, but they were accepted by the Gentiles, just as Jesus is. So Jesus is basically, he's going to mirror a lot of the same works 
as Elijah and Elisha. So by Jesus telling the story of Elijah and Elisha, where they're both rejected by the Jews at a period in their ministry, but accepted by the Gentiles, he's in a sense holding up a mirror to his own hometown. And he's getting them to think about, you know, again, he's implying that he's a prophet, Jesus himself, and he's getting his town to think about, are you going to treat me the same way? And the townsfolk don't like it. They don't like the way he's told the story. They get quite angry about it. Verse 28, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. What are they angry about exactly? Well, it's not clear. There's two different possibilities about what his his town is angry about. So one option would be something like this. How dare the carpenter's son accuse us of rejecting a prophet of God? As in Jesus himself. That would be one option. The second option would be they're thinking something like this. How dare the carpenter's son say that God would include the Gentiles? So the Jews at this time, although they did believe the Old Testament prophecies that one day the Gentiles would be part of the final kingdom, on the whole, by this point in history, they'd come to not like the Gentiles because they associated Gentiles with Romans, the Roman soldiers. So they weren't too fond of a prophet who comes along and says, oh yeah, the Gentiles are going to accept me, the Jews won't. And so that whole Gentile-Jew tension, and they're thinking about the Gentiles' role in salvation, might have made the townsfolk quite angry. So for whatever reason, his speech about Elijah and Elisha being accepted by the Gentiles, and his, also his implication that Jesus himself is a prophet, Makes them very angry. Verse 29, they hustled him out of the town. So you can imagine them physically grabbing Jesus, dragging him out of the small town of Nazareth. And they took him up to the brow of the hill the city was built on. So Nazareth, it appears, was built on some sort of hill. And they intend to throw him down the cliff. This is Jesus' own townsfolk. They're trying to kill him. This is pretty full on. Why are they trying to kill him? Well, one theory is they might be trying to enact the penalty for a false prophet. Um, in Deuteronomy verse Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, it says, if you perceive a false prophet is in your midst, you should kill them. So maybe they think Jesus is a false prophet, or maybe they've just had enough of him. This is foreshadowing the other plots on Jesus' life that will occur later in his life. So Luke has put this in here really early. So we already get a picture of Jesus as a suffering person who uh, people want to kill. But verse 30, he slipped through the crowd, or some translations have it as passing through the midst of them. What does that mean? Does that mean that he sort of just ran away or is it some sort of miraculous escape? It's not clear. It's not clear how he disappeared from the crowd here. Probably some sort of miracle involved where they didn't notice him leave but we don't know exactly. And then he went away. So he escaped the death threat and he never returns to Nazareth. He never goes back to his hometown. Some people from Nazareth come and visit him. So his his mother comes and visits him, but he apparently never goes back to Nazareth himself. Now, when we turn to the catechism, we find that this particular passage is actually a very rich one theologically. It informs a lot of uh, the church's teachings. So let's have a look at paragraph 1286. This is about confirmation. It says, In the Old Testament, the prophets announced that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on the hoped-for Messiah in his saving mission. So here, the Catholic Church confirms that this passage from Isaiah 61 does, in fact, uh, predict 
that the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on the Messiah. The church confirms that with this paragraph. Paragraph 436 here is about Christ. It says, It was necessary that the Messiah be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord at once as king and priest and also as prophet. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel in his threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. Paragraph 695, this is a particularly important one. It's about the Holy Spirit. Its full force can be grasped only in relation to the primary anointing accomplished by the Holy Spirit, that of Jesus. Christ, in Hebrew, Messiah, means the anointed one by God's Spirit. There were several anointed ones of the Lord in the Old Covenant, preeminently King David, but Jesus is God's anointed in a unique way. The humanity the Son assumed was entirely anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit established him as Christ. So there we see the church discussing this idea of Jesus being anointed. Paragraph 714 is about what the people at Jesus' time expected of the Messiah. This is why Christ inaugurates the proclamation of the good news by making his own the following passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Paragraph 544. The kingdom belongs to the poor and lowly, which means that those who have accepted it with humble hearts. Jesus is sent to preach good news to the poor. Paragraph 2443 is about loving the poor people. When the poor have the good news preached to them, it is the sign of Christ's presence. So there we see not only was Jesus called to preach to the poor in this passage, but also all Christians are called to preach to the poor. That is part of an extension of the Messiah's work. Paragraph 1168 is about the liturgical year. It's an interesting application here. Beginning with the Easter Triduum as its source of light, the new age of the resurrection fills the whole liturgical year with its brilliance. Gradually, on either side of this source, the year is transfigured by the liturgy. It is really a year of the Lord's favour. So interesting, the church sees that phrase, year of the Lord's favour, which was in context about something completely different in the Old Testament. Thanks to the way the church structures the liturgical year, every year can be considered a year of the Lord's favour. Interesting. Hope you learnt something new from today's episode and we'll continue in the Gospel of Luke in the coming days. Please make sure you share this podcast with others.